1: This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear actually does not contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A moose, a goose, ginseng et amame. Pesca doing a Trump-esque Person, woman, man, camera, TV, thang? No, no. Here's another one. A flute. A jellyfish. A pink heart. Um, what are three things that urinating on will counter the effects of? No, Karnak. That's not it. What? What are you saying? Maracas. A blurry face. A right hand. Things that you shake. I, I actually give up, but I am also the... Quizmaster. So I'll just tell you guys. These are among the newest emojis out from the Unicode Consortium. There are only 31 of these new emojis, and a whole bunch of them are just different colored hands making a shape, a left hand or a right hand. If you look at them, they could look like uh, bookends, a couple different color hearts. There's also the kandar, the symbol of the Sikh faith. But 31 is only about a quarter of the number of emojis added last year and a tenth of the number of emojis added in 2020. This is a purposeful culling of the emoji herd because so many emojis, perfectly good emojis, are just getting ignored. In fact, I came across a list of the least popular emojis. Last and second to last, A rotary phone and a dicky. No, no, I'm just kidding. It's Jodspurs and a butter churn. No, those aren't real emojis. I can actually see a butter churn having potential as a stand-in for something sexual. You know, it's called eggplanting in the emoji world. The least popular are actually the eye in speech bubble, which, yeah, I have no idea what that means, and I bet you don't either. That's why no one uses it. And there are two, the second and third, or the... uh, penultimate and anti-penultimate emojis in terms of popularity reflect our current era of political polarization. The left speech bubble and the right anger bubble. Those are their official names. And also those are two off-putting aspects to the discourse today. The new emojis are to be approved in September. I fear that if we wait until then, there might not be enough time for the cryptic combo, Goose Maracas, Blue Heart, Hibiscus, which will, of course, provide the answers to all we've been seeking. On the show today, I spiel about a Muppet-based microaggression, could be a macroaggression, depending on which social media feed you're looking at. But first, as the Uvalde School Board considers firing Chief Pete Arundondo for his actions or lack of actions in the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, the discussion centers on procedures and planning and cover-ups. But if it were a different time, I think all these discussions and fingers pointed would be at the question of character and it would be framed as an act of cowardice. The New York Post did, in fact, put the word cowards on its cover to describe the police mustered in the hallway, but not breaching the classroom door. So I tracked down America's lone expert on cowardice to ask him about that characteristic. Boston University's Chris Walsh is up next. As we learn more about the details of the Uvalde school shooting and the inaction that led to more carnage than would have happened otherwise. There is one word that I cannot get away from, but in the popular press and the discussion of this, that word doesn't appear. In fact, that's a quality of this word, and that word is cowardice. It seems like a harsh assessment, but why wouldn't it apply in this case? So I reached out to not only the leading authority, but possibly America's only authority, only living authority on this once ancient idea of cowardice. He is Chris Walsh, assistant professor of English at Boston University and author of Cowardice, A Brief History. Hello, Chris. Good morning. So when we say only authority, I'm kind of joking, but kind of not. Why is that the case?
2: Well, there is a long history of avoiding discussion of the topic of cowardice and uh, it goes back before Dante, but Dante's is uh, the, the great example because he is uh, the person who cataloged every species of, of human baseness and sin in the Inferno. And uh, the cowards, uh, those guilty of cowardice in his view, actually don't get into the Inferno. So they're, they're actually in the ante room, the lobby of hell and uh, Virgil is guiding him through. It's very early in the, in the journey, and Dante notices hordes, numberless souls, wailing and slapping themselves, and, and he asks Dante, who are those people? And Dante says, well, those are the neutrals. Those are the people who, who never committed to anything in life. And, and then he says, let us not speak of them. Mm-hmm. And Kierkegaard also uh, uh, written much about fear and, and wrote about cowardice, but but also observed that we find it hard to talk about cowardice. We start to talk about it, it slips away. A man named William Ian Miller wrote some excellent books, and he he was going to write a book about cowardice About around the time when I was finishing sort of my first version of a draft of this book as a dissertation. And he said, I was going to write a book about cowardice, but cowardice gave way, that's what it always does. Mm-hmm. And and so he wound up, wound up writing a book about the mystery of courage and that left the field open for me.
1: Yeah, but there are hundreds of courage books and yep. very, very few, or maybe yours is the only cowardice book. What about it is so unattractive, unappealing, Um, Does it have something to do with, I've heard historians say that when they spend years on a subject, they want to at least like the subject a little bit or identify with it. And cowardice is so repellent. It's something that people don't want to live with.
2: Sure. There is that. I mean, it's the, yeah, it it might well be the the very worst thing someone can be. And uh, if you pull a population of Americans, especially men being called a coward is the worst insult. Look it up in the Urban Dictionary. That's what it says, the worst insult known to man. Mm-hmm. And I think also studying it for any length of time, one starts to contemplate one's own cowardice, and that's no no fun to do. So,
1: Yeah. And, you know, cowardice is the worst insult. It gets applied to both the terrorists, people who revert to extreme acts of violence. And now I'm applying it to Pete Arredondo, the the school official who failed to act, which is the exact opposite, an extreme act of non-violence when violence was necessary. So in a way, it does have a definition. It is a failure to commit to an action, but it is a very capacious definition, it seems.
2: Yes, uh, it gets wielded the label of coward gets thrown at a lot of different folks and uh, and yeah as you say, sometimes the a terrorist will be accused of cowardice. It happened here in Boston with the marathon bomber bombers and with the 9/11 terrorists and it, the definition, and we can I can give you my working definition it's pretty hard to apply to the 911 terrorists who say what you will about them did actually a a, a kind of a brave act a, a reckless violent terrible act but Chris you're going to get nerve. canceled
1: from your show politically incorrect <laughs> if you say that
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. um but, but how I like to define it um, is how Aristotle, and I think the a long tradition in the military, and not just the military, of, of just defining it as the failure to do one's duty because of excessive fear. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, seven years after publishing the book, I had a, a, a revelation, which was that, I think for the most part, we should discontinue the use of the word coward that it is a label that sheds more heat than light. I definitely don't begrudge any of the families of the victims at Uvalde um, from wielding that label. Mm -hmm. But I think the rest of us would do better to think about an act of cowardice rather than labeling the people who committed these acts of cowardice or failed to to, to act because of cowardice.
1: Mm. Is cowardice merely the opposite of bravery? Uh, I, you know, uh,
2: bravery, courage. First of all, it's a word that we use much more frequently, and I actually think it uh, they're words that are, in a way, much less useful because they they are. It's more vague. So we have, you know. Or whatever a case that William Ian Miller brings up is somebody who votes a professor who votes no on a manifestly obvious bad tenure case is is said to have courage you know so the coin of the, the idea of courage gets kind of debased by how frequently we throw it around you know a, somebody who makes a foul shot to win a game a courageous shot right? yes <laughs> and so to answer your question I mean we can look at a kind of um, spectrum of what Aristotle gives us is, on the one side, cowardice, where we have failure out of excessive fear. On the opposite side is not courage, but recklessness, where we have a, a deficit of fear. Mm. Uh, and then in the middle is, um, is right action guided by a sense of what actually are the dangers. And when we try to speak precisely about courage it often has to do with actions that are undertaken beyond the call of duty or beyond what a person would be expected to to do mm-hmm. and not you know the john f kennedy profiles and courage awards and they're typically given to a politician who actually just does the right thing you know like votes for something that will cost them politically And to me, that's simply, they should be called the um, awards for not being cowardly, as Mm -hmm. opposed to the awards (laughs) for being courageous.
1: Yeah. And, you know, an original an original profile in courage was Edmund Ross, who voted against the impeachment of Andrew Jackson. I mean, by original is he was included in the book and now history has come to regard him as quite a cowardly figure and maybe a venal figure Mm. who took bribes uh, to cast that (laughs) vote where we've done a 180 on the wisdom of said vote. So yeah, things change. Um, Okay. I want to talk about this specific case and I don't mind pointing the finger at Pete who who is in charge of the, he was the uh, commander at the scene. His calls dictated the response and every bit of evidence that I have seen would indicate that he did not act in accordance with his training and that he prevented anything close to a timely intervention. So what else, maybe what he was doing and all he was doing was, you know, in his own mind, engaged in, well, we don't want to be reckless. That quality you, ter- you talked about, that was uh, an extreme opposite of cowardice. So perhaps he just got the calculation wrong. Yeah. Um, at what point, though, does that or getting the calculation wrong, is it informed by something that we can or maybe once did call cowardice?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, here's where I think thinking about cowardice can actually be helpful even in, in the, the these intense moments. I mean, so, you know, studies of soldiers show that they are not typically motivated by the desire to be heroes. But what drives a soldier to say attack a fortification with his his comrades in arms, um he's doing that not because he wants to be a hero, but because he's convinced that not doing it would be cowardly. Right. And so and I think that and the the questions that thinking about cowardice sets in train, you know, what is my duty? It is the first one. What should I do? And then the other one, what, you know, what do I fear? What am I so afraid of, right? And, you know, I'm reading that report. I mean, you know, these guys there was that door, that entrance way to room 111 and 112 and you know, it can be a tough position. There was no way to attack it without risking your own life. Right. But I think, you know, given the training, the jobs of these people, the thing they chose to do with their lives, then that should have pushed them to err on the side of acting, right? Right. Even as I'm saying this, you know, I also find myself thinking about all of those i don't know how many there were in the t- more than 20 security person yeah yeah i also feel like we are we are those people that they are <laughs> representing us in a way as uh, a society where we are in a situation where kids are getting killed where, and that's just to pick the, 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 particular incident at hand, but, but think about that more largely. And when it comes to gun violence,
1: right. We are and, in a situation where kids are getting killed. It's called America in 2022. So go ahead, right. go ahead.
2: And, and so what are we supposed to do? And I think a lot of what we wind up doing is st- in parallel to what these security and police people did, which was okay to focus on the situation, but to not be sure who's in command, to not be sure how to frame it. Is it a hostage situation? Uh, to not communicate very well with each other. And to feel like, and I think the—and—and and at, at bottom, and maybe the worst thing, the most damning is, to feel like we needed somebody's permission to do something
1: playing on the idea that we're all the assembled security forces in the hallway we all desperately want to intervene we all desperately want to do something so we look to our leaders and they are beset by inaction ineptitude sclerosis and so that's another frustration
2: yeah, so this reminds me of uh, a, a parable from Kafka that I referred to very briefly in the book, but the parallels to the situation in Uvalde are are really haunting. Um, so the 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 tale which uh, Kafka published on its own and then as part of his his novel, The Trial, which is sort of about dealing with the law, the tale uh, is of a a man who Comes to go before the law, and that's the, the title of the piece. And there is a gatekeeper there, and the gate is open, um, and the gatekeeper is standing to the side of the gate. And um, the man asks if he can go in, and the gatekeeper's like, "Not now, but you know, you're you're welcome to stick around." And uh, and he even says, "You know, you can go in despite the fact that I am prohibiting you." But you, know, you can take a glance through the gate and you'll see that there are other gates and I am the least daunting of the gatekeepers. And the man takes a look and decides that it would be best to just bide his time outside the gate. And he sits, as, as Kafka puts it, for days and years. And the gatekeeper is, they interact a little bit as, as the years go by, but the years do indeed go by and the man is getting old, his eyesight is uh, failing him, but he can see in the darkness, and this is towards the end of the parable, an illumination, and I'll quote, which breaks inextinguishably out of the gateway to the law. And he, know, he but he knows he no longer has much time to live. And I think of the illumination of I don't know the, those lives of those children inside inside rooms one eleven and one twelve. And so he he the man beckons the gatekeeper and says to him, you know, everyone strives after the law to come before the law, whatever that means in this parable. But in all these years, I am the only person who has been at this gate, the only person who has requested entry. And the gatekeeper says, well, no one else can gain entry through this gate because this one was assigned only to you. Then the gatekeeper closes the gate and that's the at the end of the parable. And so I think, and, and if you look at the details of, of what was happening at Evalde, um, men looking for clearance per, for permission to do what, to many of them, it seemed was absolutely essential to do. And so the, the parallels to the question of gun violence in the United States writ large or or to other pressing problems seem really, really haunting.
1: Chris Walsh is a professor of English at Boston University. He is the author of Cowardice, A Brief History. Thank you so much, Chris.
2: Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it.
1: Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter— and not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak. It changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Muppet Gate. After Sesame Place kindly Muppet Rosita failed to deliver high fives to two young black girls, a backlash ensued. At first, Sesame Place said the woman in the Rosita costume, there are people in there, you know, was making another gesture to a different park goer and also blamed blind spots in the giant mascot head. CNN's Bryn Gingrass has more on this case of the hue and fury over the Muppet who is blue and furry.
0: The mother I talked to her, she said that, you know, these are differing sort of opinions. Like really, it, this, it sounds like a denial to her.
1: That's because it was a denial. And why are they denying any ill intent? Presumably because they believe the human in the Muppet outfit had no ill intent, which was immediately picked up on by MSNBC's Zerlina Maxwell.
0: What more do you want to see from Sesame Place's response? I mean, they, their response, which we read the statement, focused on the intent, um, not really the impact. Do you think that they should consider the impact on your child but the other child, children who were ignored here and, and you know try to implement pol- policies to prevent this from ever happening?
1: Never again. Every child who asks for a high five shall receive a high five or else giant colorful heads will roll. Be Ivory Lamar wants to see to that as he breaks down the clip of the incident. When it comes to them, what we see is that the character actually goes around those girls. It, You know, the, the character changes direction to some degree um, so as to avoid um, my clients. Oh, yes. Did I mention Lamar's clients are the unhigh-fived six-year-old girls? Damages? Too early to tell. Other videos are emerging of pointedly non-hugged children of color and also a video of Bert, the monobrowed, conical-headed Bert, said to be slapping a young child of color with a giant yellow hand. Ernie was not available for comment. Lawyers for the Girls' Family held a press conference where Lamar spoke thanking singers Kelly Rowland, Vince Gill, and civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, who has been described as the attorney general of black America. Lamar made this declaration. We reject any notion that the performance actions this past Saturday was anything short of intentional. I know our black girls are magic, but I didn't know that they were invisible. We are tired of your excuses. We are tired of justifications. We will not tolerate racism in this country. We will not tolerate it in policing. We will not tolerate it in our health systems. We will not tolerate it on our jobs. We will not tolerate it in our schools. And we most definitely would not tolerate it in our theme parks directed at our children. I have a few predictions. One, corporate response. Sesame Place will do an investigation, find no fault with employees, but issue new guidelines, especially now that every person who shows up in their theme park with an iPhone, which is to say every person who shows up in their theme park, will be acting as a monitor for any future disses. Characters might be paired with spotters to make sure no hugs or head pats go unissued. Two, responses from the workers in the neighborhood. So a few individuals inside the costumes will probably come forward. Someone who works in the park will position herself as a whistleblower and the allegations will be that park workers were sometimes privately insensitive. Also, some of those very Burt's or Rosita's caught on film will turn out to be pretty sympathetic young people who had no idea they ever missed a high five. Maybe one will even be a person of color. Three, broader culture. The right will love this story. Making a huge deal of the left, making a huge deal. Videos of white kids getting ignored by Elmo or having their hope snuffed out from Snuffleupagus will surface. These videos will get widespread coverage on the right, along with the claim that they're all being ignored by the left. Four, the stock of SeaWorld, which operates some Sesame Place operations, will be scrutinized, and claims about one or two-day dips will make it seem like there is a backlash, whether or not an actual backlash surfaces. Finally, Sesame and Sesame Place will apologize, this time the right way, whatever that is. Probably something close to abjectly, fully maybe even leveraging Cookie Monster or Abby Cadabby in a video to really drive the point home. Will critics be appeased? Not all, but the average member of the mass public will sigh and have the general reaction, eh, C is for contrition and that's good enough for me. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey Wara, said to have strong Grover vibes. Joel Patterson is senior producer. His childhood ended the day he learned that Grouch was a disposition, not a species. Michelle Pasca has many titles at Peachfish Productions. How many? One, two, three! (laughs) Ha 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 ha! The gist is presented in collaboration with Libson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Which is today sponsored by the letter P and the number six. Umperu, Gperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening.